If you have your Bible with you, uh, go ahead and grab it and turn with me uh, to Psalm 127. Uh, That's where we're picking it up this morning as we continue in worship. We're in Psalm 127, one of those uh, songs of ascent. This is a song that they would have sung, that the Jewish people would have sung as as they were making their way to Jerusalem, as they were headed there for the Passover. And so this was, if you think about it, this was part of God's like ancient playlist for his people. Like they would have known this song. They're singing it out loud as they're walking. Everywhere you went was up to Jerusalem. And so they're singing as they go up to Jerusalem. And we're just going to jump in uh, here this morning. So stand with me, if you will. And let's look to God and his word to us this morning. It says Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, where he gives sleep to his he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, I pray now that you would speak to us through your word. I pray that you would use your word to shape and fashion us into the people you would have us to be, into your new creation, sons and daughters. Lord, I pray that you would do that for us. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When we first, uh, we first decided to take these few months um, to work through the Psalms, we had this idea. It's really, I think it was Andrew's idea as we were talking through it, this idea of connecting them to the various elements of our services of worship. And that, and that language right there is very specific. Um, this is a service of worship. It's a worship service. This is not a worship experience, right? It's not a worship celebration. This is a service of worship, meaning that what we do here isn't primarily about us or about what we receive out of it or about what we experience during it, but it's about us offering to God. This is what this is right now, what we're doing even now. Like the preaching of the word is part of the worship service. This isn't like the other's not warm up until we get to this part. This is all part of one service of worship uh, with God as our focus, with the Lord as our focus. It's about offering to him something that is pleasing and acceptable to him as the only one who is worthy of worship. And so we strive, like we genuinely strive to be very intentional about that uh, each Lord's Day. This is what drives our liturgy. I know we don't use that word liturgy a whole lot. That's what drives our order of worship. So the liturgy is the order of worship. That word liturgy comes from two words that, that literally mean the work of the people. Like even our liturgy expresses that we're here to, to work, that we're here to do something. So that means worship, as we see it, is not a passive experience, right? It's not a, a passive observation. It's not a passive thing. It's an active participation. 
And if you look, like if you take that little piece of paper that we give you each Sunday as you're walking in, um, and if you've spent any amount of time with us here, you, you will learn that we are pretty consistent, at least in the order of what happens here each Sunday. And, and this isn't because we're lazy, right? It's, it's really not. It's not because we aren't creative. Um, I mean, like, not, like I'm not creative. I've, I've never claimed to be. We have creative people up here, right? People who are, are, are creative and they come up with new and, and different things that we can do. But it's, the reason we're consistent in what we do each Lord's Day is because we believe, right, that God, uh, that well, first off, we believe that there is a God. So let's establish that. We believe there is a God who has created all things and we believe that this primarily is about Him. So we want to worship Him. We want to do the things that God has told us to do in worship. And so the way we do that each week is we work through three, uh, three themes. They are praise, renewal, and commitment. You'll see those. If you look in that worship guide or that worship order, you will see those big, bold letters over there, um, praise, renewal, and commitment. And ordinarily, right there after we confess our faith, right there under the renewal heading, we have what we call a children's message. We, we had that today. We did, Remember I brought a child up here, threatened him that I was going to throw him off of here and the kids were going to have to catch him. It was borderline child abuse. I apologize in advance. And thinking about it now, it's like, man, that was kind of horrible to do to my kid. But anyway, thank you for volunteering to do that. We do the children's message. We did that today. And Psalm 127, Psalm 127, I, this might seem strange, but Psalm 127 connects with this series of the Psalms right there with the children. This is primarily where Psalm 127 connects in our order of worship. It's with the family. And what we're going to see today in this Psalm is this very clear expression of what we're calling holy dependence. Holy dependence on the Lord. It's this holy dependence, not in some things, not in a lot of things, and not even in most of the things, but in all things. That's the one point that we want to make here today. Just like the children's message each week, if we can make just one point, just just one. And, and look, sometimes we miss, all right? Sometimes I walk back over there and I'm like, I don't know what just happened, all right? If we can make just, by the way, for you parents in the room, please understand that's how it's going to be in spiritual conversations sometimes with your kids. Like you're going to swing for the fence and they're going to be like, dude, I'm not even on the field. Like I, don't, I, I just asked you to change the song. I didn't ask you for a sermon on this. And maybe that's just me a little bit. My kids are like, yeah, stop preaching, dude. Just play the music. But sometimes you're going to swing and miss on on your little lessons for the kids. Sometimes I swing and miss up here. If anything you can learn from me sitting up here on the floor, it's like that guy messes up in front of people all the time. I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid of that. But what we're trying to understand here today is that in all things, here's the one point, I'm giving it to you right at the front, that in all things, we are dependent on the Lord. In everything, in all things, we are dependent on the Lord. Now, I realize that for most of us, professing or declaring our dependence, our dependence, isn't really seen as a good thing. Because to be dependent, like we're a nation of declaring our independence, right? Like we know that. We just celebrated that a few weeks ago. And so here we come now. And what I'm going to tell you is that we should be people who profess our dependence. Because to be dependent is to be needy. To be dependent means to be lacking in 
something. But, but what Solomon wants us to know, like what the, what the Bible wants to, us to know is in the great paradox of the faith is that there is actually great strength to be found in our weakness. Well, so I want you to do this. I want you to look back at verse 1 with me. Here's what we read. We read, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Now this is, I want to pause here. This is sort of the church planting anthem verse right there. Right? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it, labor and vain. It is the classic verse that gets put on every mailer that you send out. It goes somewhere on the website. When you are planting a church, this is the, this is the verse, right? Psalm 127 verse 1 is the verse. When we first got called to go and plant Rivercrest, I can't tell you how many people gave me like little signs to put up that said, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And I always wanted to say, unless the person gives some money, we ain't going to have a church to plant. But that was like, that was a, a little bit too far for me. I wasn't willing to do that. But it was like, unless you do that, I don't eat, you know. So anyway, it was like, it was that whole deal. It, it felt like, it felt cliche to me, if I can just be honest with you. At the time, I was like, I was like I'm sick of hearing that. I don't want you to tell me Psalm 127 Verse 1, I've literally never seen a new church's website, by the way, that didn't include that verse somewhere near the top. And, and I really don't think it's being used to manipulate people. Like, I really don't. I don't think that we use that verse to try and manipulate people to do something, even though anything, anything in human hands can be used to manipulate, right? We're, we're, we're really good at that. But I think the reason we hear so, the reason we hear this verse so often within the context of church planting is because it says so clear, clearly what almost all church planters will eventually come to realize that we cannot accomplish the work that has been set out before us. Like we, we can't do it. We are, we're not enough. It confesses our dependence on the Lord. And that's a good thing. But the problem is that this good thing has the tendency to become a lost thing. It's that at some point in the journey, we tend to lose sight of this. By the way, I'm going after the church right now, okay? That the church, meaning us, we have the tendency to lose sight of Psalm 127. We lose our grip on this truth. And we begin to think that the church is really dependent on us. We, we really do. If we're not careful, you'll see this drift into that. You'll see it in our meetings. You'll see it in how we talk to one another. We'll begin to think that it's about our charisma. We'll begin to think it's about our connections. Some people will begin to think it's about our entrepreneurial genius. It's our ability and our creativity. We, we get the right leaders and the right positions to do the right things and it will work. But what Solomon does, right? And if we consider his life, it, it, he, really is an, he really gives us an example of how easy it is to drift over into like this sort of pop psychology myth of self-sufficiency. Here's what one author said. He said, sadly, Solomon often wrote better than he lived. What Solomon proved over and over is that it's easier to talk about surrender to the Lord than it is to actually wave that white flag. 
You see, we're all prone to this sort of expressive individualism that says, here's what it says, and you tell me if I'm making this up. Here's what our world says today. It says, you be you. Our world says, be true to yourself. Or here's the granddaddy of all of them, right? Follow your heart. Anybody heard those things said? I don't think I'm the only one. By the way, I'm about as disconnected from the world as you can possibly be. And I hear it all the time. These are the cries of the modern self. They're an expression of the, of the sort of Disney-fied psychology of modernity. They're the anthem of the world. Just follow your heart. But what, what Psalm 127 does is it makes it very obvious that the modern self has really just fallen into what is really the same ancient trap. We're still drawn in on ourselves. We still drift naturally. There's this like gravitational force in us that pulls our attention, that pulls our affection, that pulls us to our own self-sufficiency. But we aren't independent creatures. We aren't self-sufficient creatures. Now, we aren't completely passive. Psalm 127 doesn't tell, uh, doesn't tell us to just do nothing and see what happens. It doesn't say that, does it? I mean, the builder is building the house. It doesn't say, just sit there and see if a house appears. It doesn't say that. And if we aren't, if we aren't careful, we'll, we'll drift into that. Like, I'm just going to let go and let God. By the way, that's not in the Bible either. So it's not just the world who comes up with lame catchphrases. The church is pretty good at bumper stickers that need to be burned too. Okay? Because here's what will happen. If you say, I'm just going to let go and let God. You know what will happen? You'll starve to death. That's what will happen. You'll get to meet God earlier. If you don't do something, you will eventually just physically fade. So on a pragmatic level, we're reminded each night and every day that we're designed to need food and to need rest. Like God built that into you. Remember, it was before sin was in the garden that he told Adam, take and eat. You remember that? Dude was hungry before there was sin. It was, it was before sin entered that God said, here's the seventh day where, where we're going to rest, right? I'm, I'd do the work in six and we're going to rest. And so God programmed that into humanity from the very beginning. Need for food and need for rest, they're not effects of the sin, they're effects of creation. This is how you were designed. But here's the thing about both food and rest take effort, don't they? Like you have to plan that stuff out. Yeah, the call of God isn't to do nothing, but it's to recognize our dependence on the Lord, a holy dependence, because that's how we were made. And what Solomon does here in the psalm is he uses the examples that really reflect what we would call the imago Dei, right? That's the image of God in man. Look at it again. He says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So the idea there is to work, right? It's to work. You don't build by not doing anything. You build by working, to labor. That's to, it's to work. It's to do something. And then he says, unless the Lord keeps watch, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Now to watch is to guard, right? That's what he's talking about. He's not just saying just be awake. I mean, that doesn't do anybody any good. He's saying to watch with intentionality. To guard is to keep. These two activities that we're engaging in, or at least that we're called to engage in, they reflect that mandate given to the man in the garden in Genesis 2.15. That's where we're told the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to what? To work it and keep it. To work it 
and keep it. That's what Richard Phillips has called the masculine mandate. And by the way, this is something far greater than the sort of <coughs> cheap, macho masculinity that, that kind of gets pushed around with all the bravado today, right? It's to work and to keep. It's to cultivate it and to guard it. It's to build and to watch. Remember, that this work was given to Adam. He was commissioned for this work before the fall. So, so work, again, is not an effect of the fall of man into sin. It's not inherently evil. There's nothing evil about building the house. That is good and right. And there's nothing wrong with keeping watch. That's a good thing. And Solomon isn't trying to say anything against building and watching in this psalm. What he's getting at at this stage in his life, probably having been through some stuff. Right? Solomon's got some experience under him at this point. Is he's trying to attempt. He's trying to attempt to get us to realize that if we attempt anything apart from God, is to do it in vain. And I don't want to overreach either. So let's be careful that we don't drift over into sort of churchiology here, okay? It's not saying that those who fail to depend on the Lord are going to be homeless and starved to death. That's not what it's saying. Um, there are plenty of people living very comfortably today in this world who don't make any sort of profession of faith or, or dependence on God. But what Solomon, who, who, who says in Ecclesiastes 2, he says this, he says, I made great works. This is Solomon talking, this is a self This is a self-revelation. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. He said, I love this one. He says, I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Solomon planted forests. I, I am struggling. Like we had all this rain for the past four weeks. And then yesterday I went outside and my poor little crepe myrtle looks like it's dying, right? I, I've planted a bush that, that like it, you can't kill it, right? And I still struggle to keep it alive. Solomon planted forest and then he built lakes to water his forest. Like this guy built things. So when he says, unless the builder, unless the Lord builds the house, the builder labors in vain, he knows what he's talking about. He knew what it was to, but he had 700 wives, seven, I don't know what in the world Cuz was thinking on that, 700 wives, and you know what he built for all of them? Built their own house. That shows you he was also smart. So he was stupid and smart in the same thing. He was like, nope, nope, this ain't going to work, can't have on the same roof. Built 700 houses, 700 different opinions on what kind of paint color. 700 different window treatments, 700 different bedspreads, like all that different stuff. He, he made himself miserable. And so when he says, unless you build it for the Lord, you labor in vain, he knew what he was talking about. He built a lot of stuff. No, see, here's what he would say at the end, by the way. He would say to me with my little crepe myrtle, he'd say it to you with your, with your glorious yard, whatever it is, with his lakes and forests. In the end, he says, it's all vanity. That's what he said. He says it's all vanity. It's all meaningless. Because all that is going to fade. All of that eventually, eventually all that is going to die and it's going to be replaced by something else. We don't know where those 700 houses are. Evidently, they didn't build them too well because they're gone. I mean, we, we, the miracle of foundation repair is something we've seen in the last couple of months here. Because I don't know if you all know that, but under this platform, about a month ago, there was just a bottomless crevice. Like we asked, that, we put a thousand pound piano up here and went, hope it doesn't just fall off into oblivion. 
And Claire sits over there just happy as can be, playing. I got a daughter over there. I'm like, she's risking her life right now. And so we finally had the foundation repair, and they bring it back up. You know what's going to happen in another 50 years? Zero chance this building is still here. None, right? I mean, come on. There's just, it's not, we, can, we wish it would be, but it's not going to be. Your grandkids not getting married in this building. I promise you that. Now, the primary emphasis shouldn't be, oh, here's what it is. The primary emphasis of our life shouldn't be on the temporal results that we, that we strive after. But on the, here's what it should be, on the eternal value of the kingdom of God. So in that way, the house and the city, they're representative. That's what's happening here. They're meant to encompass all of our earthly existence. And that means we can apply it in abundance of ways to our lives today. So it's safe to say that unless the Lord plants the church, those who plant it labor in vain. Unless the Lord brings the rain, those who plant the fields labor in vain. He's going, he's going at the end of the day, we are completely dependent. We are completely dependent on him. And that hasn't changed for you and I today. We're still those dependent creatures. Now, does he use flawed and fragile people to accomplish his purposes in the world? Absolutely, he does. And we sit here today as proof of that. We are living proof of what Jesus said to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Solomon drives us home in verse 2. Look at that. He says this. He says, It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. Again, it's not that getting up, for work, uh, getting up early for work is wrong. That's not what he's saying. There are a bunch of reasons we might get up for work early. If you've lived in South Carolina any amount of time and do anything outside during these months, it's probably wise to get up early and beat the sun a little bit. Okay? And so it's not an indictment on the work hours, but rather the spirit of the one doing the work. I love the way Tremper Longman says it. He says this, he says, verse, verse two indicates that all the effort in the world will not allow people to survive or thrive. At all, I mean, ask the builder of the Titanic. He was not trying to make a ship that would sink. And we know where that boat sits today. His point is not just to stay home and do nothing. His point is that we shouldn't mistake our effort as the source of success. It's that God, right, in his sovereignty, he's the one who gives that success. And so if verse one, if verse one is a warning against a form of overconfidence in ourselves, sort of that pride, verse two is a warning against an overworking of ourselves. Now look at verse three. Because it feels like a pretty... <laughs> it feels like a pretty abrupt shift here. He says this, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb are reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gates. So we just heard that if the Lord doesn't build the house, those who build it labor in vain. And we heard that if the Lord doesn't keep watch over the city, those who, those who watch, uh, the watchman who stays awake, he, he stays awake in vain. And now he gives us a picture of children and the family. He, he sort of, he's sort of bleeding these two ideas that, that seem fairly disconnected at first. He's just sort of bleeding them together. And, and what we're supposed to understand is, is that this gift of children is truly a heritage from the Lord. And at the risk of sounding redundant, what, what we are supposed to understand is that the Lord is the one who gives them. Right? The fruit of the womb, just like the building of the house and just like the safety of the city, 
are dependent on the Lord. We've had the privilege of welcoming a whole, whole bunch of babies um, into the world over the past year. Uh, the families of Rivercrest have been blessed, and as a result, the church has, like, as a result, the church has been blessed. And and what this psalm does is it gives us a picture here. It gives us a picture of God's perspective on these children. It gives us a glimpse at the heart of God for the smallest among us. Over the past couple of weeks, I've had two different conversations about the time in our services that we commit to the children's message. These were not planned conversations. They just kind of happened. And in both of those conversations, as we were talking about the why, like why do we do that? I was reminded of how important it is that you all know why we do what we do. And I don't know that we've ever communicated that. Like from the very beginning, we just kind of started doing children's messages and and then we kept doing it. And, and we do ask, like from time to time, is there a better way? And, and so I want you to know why we do that. The time with the children is not because it's convenient, all right? It is not because it's comfortable. I think, Andrew, who I think you're the only other one who's ever done a children's message here. I think you will agree that that is the most absolutely terrifying moment in any given week was when we come up here and get on the floor with the kids. Not because, um, not because the kids are scary, all right? Children, you're not scary, all right? We love you. We're not, like, scared of you. It's, but it is just that we don't really know what you're going to say. Like, and, and we don't want to be, like, a lecture to the children. We want it to be a conversation. And if you've ever had a conversation with a child, you know you can be thinking this thing, and you think they're thinking this thing, but really, really, they're over here, especially during the holidays. We went through a season when we were doing Christmas lessons through April up here, all right? We had, some of our kids were still stuck in kind of Christmas mode. It was beautiful. As a grown-up, it's just sort of terrifying because you want things to be under control. Or at least I do. I want to know exactly what's going to happen. So like if we could, we, we kind of track our services by the minute. We go, all right, that song's three minutes. That one's four and a half minutes. Every once in a while we go crazy. That one's seven minutes. All right, how many bridges do we really need or whatever? But we just kind of do it and, and, we, and, we, and, we, and we think through it in those terms. And so I don't know how long that's going to last. Because I promise you, if there's a good conversation going, we will sit there as long as we need to. Like that's kind of how it is. The one moment in the service, we just go, that's the chaotic moment. But there's beauty in that chaos. There's beauty in feeling unprepared. There's beauty in not knowing and not having control over what is going to be said. The potential to look like you have no idea what is going on is pretty high each Sunday when you sit up here. That's what's scary. But it's also important. Here's why we do it. It's important for us. It's important to us that our children know that we see them as a gift and not as a nuisance. It's important that that they understand that we see them as a blessing and not as a project. We see them as a heritage from the Lord and not as a burden in this life. It's important that they understand. Here's a piece of it. It's important that they understand that their pastor isn't just their parents' pastor. That their pastor is no better than them, no stronger than them, no more capable of walking with the Lord than them. 
And that as long as he can, as long as those knees hold up, he will sit down there on the floor with them and meet them face to face and talk about the things of the Lord because he wants nothing more in this world for them than that they know the power of God for salvation in Christ Jesus. That's why we do that. I promise you it's not because I'm comfortable doing it. And Jesus is the model. So again, we didn't make this up. He's the one who told his disciples in Matthew 19, as they were treating the little kids as second-class citizens, saying, no, no, that space over there is for you. The kids can sit under that tree while the adults sit under this tree. There's a little hill off to the side, but the big hill is where the parents get to listen to Jesus talk. Jesus told them, here's what he said. He said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. You Remember that one? We kind of take that literally. When the disciples were asking Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Back in Matthew 18, we're told that Jesus, calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's Matthew 18, 4. He says this, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so now, much like the house and much like the city in Psalm 127, the child in Matthew 18 is representative of something more. He's representative of something greater. It's not that being a child guarantees you entrance into the kingdom of heaven. That's not what he's saying. That, what he's saying is that if we become like a child, in humility, recognizing our need, recognizing our dependence on the Lord, recognizing our helplessness, right? Like We have precious babies in this church. Like we really do. They're cute. And your parents, man, y'all should amen them. Come on. We have precious little children. They're all cute. Everybody wants to hold them. There are people right there right now. It's my turn. It's my turn. Let me hold them. Like that's what's happening every Sunday morning in our nursery area. They, uh, they're precious babies. But if we left things up to them, it'd be a disaster, right? Kids are disorganized. They are, especially babies. They don't know where anything is. None of them know how to speak. They just like cry a lot. You ever thought about like a baby's attitude problem? They don't have the decency to ask for nothing. They just scream. (laughs) Most of them can't walk yet. They just get carried wherever they go. They get fed. All our moms in here are like on that like baby workout plan. They all got biceps for days because they're toting these babies around all the time. They get carried. They get fed. They get burped. They get cleaned. By the way, how humiliating is that? You get burped. They get cleaned up when they inevitably make a mess. Somebody is doing everything for a baby. They don't even dress themselves, man. I mean, they're cute, but they're pitiful. And what, here's what Jesus says, by the way. He says, what he says is that whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, why is that? That's a weird thing to say if you consider the depth of what he's saying. It's because the defining feeling of faith, the defining feeling of faith is not strength. It's not ability it's not power. No, the defining feeling of faith is not strength. The defining feeling and the defining reality of faith is dependence. And this is unique. 
It really is. You see, over and against all the other religions and over and against all the other supposed saviors, even the little gods we have in our life that we think are going to make us, that we think are going to satisfy, that we think are going to fulfill us, it would against all those things. Jesus comes not to say, what have you done for me? No, he comes and says, look, <laughs> this is what I have done for you. He doesn't say to lean on your own strength. He doesn't say to pick yourself up. He doesn't say get yourself fed. He doesn't say clean yourself up. He doesn't say follow your heart. No, he comes and he says to the hungry. Here's what he says to the hungry. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He says to those who are trapped in darkness, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He says to those who are on the outside looking in, he says, I am the door of the sheep. He says to those who are lost and wandering, I am the good shepherd. He says to those who are walking in the valley of the shadow of death, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He comes to the confused and to the hopeless and to the hurting, to those who, to need, clar- those who need clarity. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says to the, to the struggling, to those who feel like they aren't enough, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's the last of Jesus' I am sayings there in the Gospel of John. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's really the heart of Psalm 127, right there. It's that when we are humbled like a child and we realize that we can't do it on our own, when we're tired and broken, and at the end of our rope, our good shepherd looks at us with wounds in his hands and scars on his feet and with love in his eyes. And he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, Jesus doesn't see you as a nuisance. He doesn't see you as a project. The Lord doesn't see you as a stranger. He sees you as a heritage from the Lord. You are his reward for his sacrifice for you at the cross. Here's what 1 John 1.9 tells us. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the grace that he has for us. That's the grace that he has for you today. Like regardless of your past, Regardless of your regardless of your present, regardless of how you came in here this morning, maybe you came in tired, maybe you came in lost, maybe you still maybe you still feel that way. Here's what Jesus says: Can you hear His voice say to you, "If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness." This is the hope of the gospel. Later on in that same letter, John's going to say this. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. The good news for us is even when we slip, he has no intention of letting us fall. Even when we get scraped up, he has no intention of letting that get infected. Even when we break, he is the good physician who can heal us. That's what we cling to today. That's what Psalm 127 is about. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you're more patient with us than we are with you.
As I read this week, Lord, it's not a coincidence that the phrases God is love and love is patient come within such uh, close proximity to one another. Because you love us in a way that we can hardly understand and you're more patient with us than we would ever be. Lord, help us to walk in the light of that today, this week, as we come back here tonight to to worship you more. Lord, help us to fill this day, the Lord's day, help us to fill it with you. Don't make excuses, I'm tired. You know what? I need nothing more than I need to worship my Savior. Lord, I pray that you'd empower us, not just today, but every day, to be a people of worship. We pray that in Jesus' name.